Okay, so if you guys don't know, we started the book of Revelation two weeks ago, okay? So I've fully said, I fully admit, we've gotten too cocky as a church, okay? We started the book of Revelation. We're going to go through the whole book of Revelation, not verse by verse, but kind of like chapter by chapter, more thematically. And so we're going to do that all the way up until our Advent series. So we're going to be in the book of Revelation during that time, okay? And so here's what I've suggested every week of the series so far, is go back and listen to that introduction sermon on the book of Revelation. It really set us up well to understand what the book of Revelation is trying to do. It will help us to all be essentially on the same page so you kind of know what angle I'm coming from when, when I'm teaching through the book of Revelation. So if you didn't listen to that sermon, go back, listen to that sermon. I'm not trying to be like, look, this, I'm awesome. I'm really just trying to get us all on the same page with this book of Revelation because it's a book that in American Christianity, at least, has all kinds of uses and all kinds of strange uses, I would say. And I would even go so far as to say irresponsible uses and interpretations. And so I think it's just important that we do that. So go back, listen to that intro if you could. What we learned about the book of Revelation, what it's trying to do is this. It is trying to disciple Christians, train up Christians into discerning, dissident, worshiping witnesses. Okay, that's what the book of Revelation is trying to do. It's trying to disciple us to be discerning about how Babylon has come in and influenced us in different ways. Uh, It wants us to be dissident, sometimes living lives that are opposing how the culture would tell us to live lives or those outside the culture or even the government itself would tell us to live. It wants us to be worshipers of the Lamb. It wants to disciple us into being worshipers of the Lamb, and it wants us to be witnesses to Jesus and his work and his soon-to-be-coming kingdom one day. And so that's what Revelation is trying to do. One of the other things that we learned about it are the genres of Revelation. What's awesome about the book of Revelation is it tells you what genres it is, what genres of scripture it is, and that helps us immensely in understanding the book of Revelation. We don't have time to define each of the genres here, but we learned that the three genres that Revelation itself claims to be is apocalyptic genre or apocalypse, uh, literary prophecy, And that it's a letter, it's a circulatory letter that went to uh, seven different churches, seven different cities worth of churches to read together. So that's some of the things. I'm going to do a little bit of review almost every week. And again, it's only because in our culture, there's so many crazies when it comes to the book of Revelation, all right? And so until I feel like those crazies are gone, you're going to keep getting reviews, okay? So that's probably going to happen most of this series, all right? So today, we're in chapters two and three of the book of Revelation. This is a very famous section of the book of Revelation. So here's the thing. The book of Revelation, all of it, is a letter to all of those seven churches. The whole thing is a letter to those seven churches. Because it's God's word, it's also like a letter to us in certain senses, but to understand it well, uh, we have to know that it's a letter to all those seven churches. Chapters two and three is often called the, the letters to the seven churches. The only mistake in doing that is the whole thing is a letter to the seven churches, but what happens in chapters two and three of Revelation is... Uh, John the author and God through John speaks specifically, he gives some specific addresses to each of those seven cities worth of churches. He goes to these churches, he, he talks about their context, the things they're dealing with as a church, and he speaks to that. And so if you've heard a sermon series in the book of Revelation at all, it's usually from this section. It's usually, like a lot of churches love to do like seven weeks on these seven addresses to these seven churches. And in these addresses, it's, it's full of challenge, it, it challenges to these churches, and it's full of comforts and promises to these churches, okay? And so we could easily spend seven weeks just in chapters two and three, but we're not going to. And so we're going to spend two weeks in, in these chapters, okay? We're going to spend two weeks in chapters two and three. And what we're going to see is we're going to see a lot of words of challenge, and we're going to see a lot of words of comfort, we're going to see God challenging his people to live differently, and we're going to see God comforting his people, letting them, letting them know all that they have 
in him. Okay, and so we're going to spend two weeks looking at the challenges and the comforts. So how we're going to do it is we're going to do a classic bad news first, good news second, okay? So this week, it's bad news, all right? So you could title this sermon The Crowd Thinner, okay? This sermon might be a bit of a crowd thinner for us today, uh, and that's okay. You know, I mean, not totally okay, but uh, uh, those that have ears here. And so, uh, so if you leave, you're not listening. No, um, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. That's very, I, I don't mean that. Uh, so uh, we're going to start off with kind of this week today, we're going to start off looking at kind of the bad news, the challenges that God gives to his people to live differently. And then next week, we're going to spend time in the comfort uh, and looking at how God comforts his people and the various promises. What I've realized is a lot of times when these letters are taught, only the challenges are looked at. And there's all these beautiful promises in them as well. And so I, 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 I like that we're going to spend a week kind of devoting ourselves uh, to both. Okay, so here's what we're going to do today specifically with those challenges. We're going to do four things. We're going to look at the features and themes of the challenges that God is making to these seven churches. We're going to look at all the addresses. We're going to kind of summarize and look at some of the features and themes of all of the challenges together. And then what we're going to do is we're going to zoom in on two of the very specific challenges that God makes to the churches. It comes up a few times. Uh, so we're going to sp- zoom in on two of them. And then I'm going to talk about how those two things are challenges not for the first century church, but they're challenges for us in the 21st century as well. And then we'll close the sermon by talking about what repentance means for us. Okay, so I'm going to take another drink. And then we're going to get started. If you want to start turning your Bibles right now uh, to give us a little bit of a flavor today of, of, of these letters, we're going to read two of the addresses. We're going to read two of the addresses that God gives. We're going to read the one to Pergamum, and we're going to read the one to Laodicea. Just kind of give us an overall flavor of how some of these sound. These are two of the more intense ones, in my opinion. And so uh, we're going to start in verse 12 of chapter 2. Okay. Words are on the screen. If you ever need a Bible, we have all kinds of Bibles in the back. Just take one, keep one. All right. Chapter 2, verse 12 says, sorry, I got to find my place. says this, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Okay, let's go to chapter 3 now, and let's look at the address to Laodicea, verse 14. And this is what it says. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, so this is Jesus 
giving specific addresses to the churches through the Spirit to John that John writes down and gives to them. I do want to say this. I meant to say this on the front end. There is one big topic we'll be talking about, you'd probably guess, uh, that maybe is not the most suitable for kiddos in the room. So if you have kiddos that you don't want them to hear about S-E-X, uh, this is like, you'll know when I start talking about to get them out of here type of thing. But we will be talking about sexual immorality at some point here. I just I, I want to try to give a warning there. So something about me, I love a good roast, okay? And I, I don't mean the like Comedy Central specials, the roast or whatever. I just mean a really clever and funny insult towards someone, okay? I, I just grew up around a lot of people who would just constantly roast each other. I grew up in families where we constantly roast each other. So the, the, the beauty of a good ro- roast is it's done in good nature, but it's just really clever too, right? So there's all kinds of ways that we've done, like I did this growing up, but I, even when someone roasts me, when it's just a clever tease, a clever insult, and it's, and it's clever, I'm laughing, I'm loving it, all right? Unless it's like, you know, something I'm extra sensitive about. But usually, uh, I, I'm, I'm lo- I love, I appreciate a good roast because there's, there's a wit, there's a quickness, there's a cleverness that goes in to building a good roast. Now, now, dads and moms in the room, don't say, hey, Anthony loves roast so I can roast you now all the time even though you don't like it, all right? Don't use that as an excuse. But a good roast is just something I, I really appreciate, and honestly, sometimes it kind of damages friendships and things, and so I have, to dial it, <laughs> I have to dial it back a little bit at times. Now, here's what's happening these addresses. In at least five of the seven, two of the seven churches, God is just like, you guys are killing it. The other five, not so much. And in the other five, God is absolutely roasting these churches. The only difference is, He's not joking, okay? Like, he's not joking around. Like, he, and what I, but what, what he is doing that is roast-like and how he's talking to these churches is he is very cleverly telling them things about themselves that relate to who they are and their context. Take, take Laodicea, for instance. We just read the whole address to Laodicea. He says to them, who were very well known for their eye medicine and their medical school, which I think could have even specialized in training up eye doctors, but they were really well known for their eye medicine in Laodicea. What he says to me is, you should ask me to give you some eye salve so you can really see. That's just a good roast. Like, he's like, you guys famous for eye medicine? Well, you need some because you can't really see where I'm moving in the world. Like, it's, it's beautiful. It's just a beautiful roast. He also says this to Laodicea. He calls them lukewarm. Now, we don't know this because we didn't live in Laodicea, but this is an absolutely beautiful roast, okay? Laodicea, they were centered in this town where, like, it was kind of crossroads for all these people, but they didn't have a great water supply. And so the, there was a town near them named Heropolis. They had hot water springs, beautiful hot water springs that were soothing, all this kind of stuff. So they had great hot water springs in Heropolis. And then I think it was Colossae near them had cold, fresh water. And Laodicea, they actually had to have their water piped in from Colossae. From, uh, and so I, I learned this this week. They had pipes back then. Who knew? And so they, they would have to have their water piped in. And so here's what was common for the Laodiceans, who, were, who was a very rich town town as well. They would have their water piped in. By the time it got to them, it wasn't cold anymore. It was lukewarm. Even it sometimes had sediment in it. You can do all the research on this. This is like very well known. And they all just complained about their water. All the time they're going, this nasty, lukewarm water. (laughs) Like they're like, I love living in Laodicea because I'm rich, but our water is nasty. So when God says to them, this idea of being lukewarm. It's like he's saying, hey, you know, you know how you complain about your nasty, lukewarm water all the time? I complain about you because your works are neither soothing nor healing nor refreshing. God is an absolute roast master in these addresses. Like you just have to see, they are just, this is one of the features of these addresses is they are very clever in insulting the context, like in a godly, holy way. They are very good at pointing out what's going on in the context and using that to speak to to those churches in those cities what is going on, what God sees as issues in them. And so throughout these addresses, those five especially, 
there's lots of things like this. There's lots of little moments like this, but it doesn't come across in the English as easily. Like, even take lukewarm. We've kind of all made our own definition of it, and, and that's, that's because we're doing our best to understand it, but when we know the first century context, we understand it even more, and we see, man, God has all of these little clever moments where he cleverly points to their context and points how, in, in some way, that shows their, their spiritual unhealth. And so we don't have time to get into all the roasts. I wish we did. And so because we don't have time, I'm going to suggest another book. I know I'm constantly suggesting books. N.T. Wright, he has a book called Revelation for Everyone. Revelation for Everyone. It's actually a really easy read, really great read on Revelation. It's just not super thorough. But his section on the addresses to these seven churches is really good, and he really points out a lot of the ways we, we see God being clever in how he's talking to these churches, okay? And so, uh, so that's one of the features, one of the big features of these. They're really cleverly written, and it doesn't always come across in English, okay? Now I kind of want to talk about like a summary of the themes, a summary of the themes of what is actually being corrected, what are the things that God is actually saying and what is he actually correcting here in these addresses to these seven churches? Okay, here's how I summarize or point out all of the different things that God says is a problem for the people of God, for Christians, for those that have been saved by Jesus. Here are the, the, the problematic behaviors that they're living out. They are clinging at times to bad teaching and listening to false teachers they, there's, their worship of God has been corrupted in different ways. They have a lack of love and a lack of works of love. That's even mentioned. The works of love are mentioned more than the lack of love. Uh, they, are, they participate in the idolatry of the day. They participate in sexual immorality. They uh, cheat on God in one sense. Opulence, their richness, is an issue. They're arrogant and self-sufficient. And then they have an issue living unstained and holy before the watching world. That's how I would, those are kind of like all the different problems you're going to see in these addresses. I like how Scott McKnight, the author of that book that many of you grabbed, Revelation for the Rest of Us, he sums up the problems of the seven churches in four ways. He says there's really four core problems. He says their love has become disordered, their, their worship was corrupted, the Christian teaching had become distorted, and their behaviors were inconsistent with the way of the Lamb, the way of Jesus. I'll be honest, I would love to talk about all the issues. I really would. It would just be a little bit fun. It would help. It'd be maybe even cathartic and therapeutic for me, but we don't have time to talk about all the issues, but that's a good summary of all the themes of the different issues. I'm just kidding. I don't really want to rail on you guys that bad. I just want you guys to know that. <laughs> like, you guys are like, what the heck? Um, so, uh, the, but that's a, that's a good summary of all the themes of the different issues going on in the church, but I do want to zoom in on two of the issues. Two of the issues that are brought up in these addresses to the seven churches. One of the issues is pretty obvious. The other issue is not as obvious, but I would argue it's just as prevalent in these seven addresses, okay? So there's going to be an obvious issue we'll zoom in on and a not as obvious issue. Okay, the obvious issue, this is get the kids out of the room issue, the obvious issue that they're dealing with in this is sexual immorality, Sexual immorality is rampant, it looks like, in some of the churches that God addresses in Revelation. Apparently, there's these bad teachers going around, and they're teaching sexually immoral things, probably about sex and practices of sex and sexuality. So John, he mentions the Nicolaitans to Ephesus and to Pergamon. John, he mentions the, the false teacher he refers to as Balaam to Pergamon that we read. And then to Thyatira, he mentions another kind of false prophet uh, that he refers to as Jezebel. So a little bit about each of those. The Nicolaitans, scholars are kind of torn. There's really not a lot out there on what the Nicolaitans were and what they were doing. There's some little things, but for some scholars, it's not enough evidence to show what they're about. But the, the little evidence that's out there that I've seen and looked at, it seems the Nicolaitans, this religious group of some sort that was maybe connected to Christians in some way, we don't know, we're not sure, 
it seems they were teaching something weird about marriage, something strange about marriage. It might have been they were kind of teaching something about open marriages or, or some kind of strange marriage practice. We're not sure from the evidence there. So there's the Nicolaitans. But Balaam and Jezebel, who John refers to, they, they link both of those, or John links both of those people to teaching things about sexual immorality that's wrong. And so here, to be clear, there wasn't actually a Balaam walking around the first, at least I don't think so, walking around the first century church teaching these things, and there wasn't actually a Jezebel. What John is doing is he's doing apocalypse. He's using an Old Testament image. He's using an Old Testament person named Balaam to kind of point out what this person in their context in that city, Pergamum, was, was doing and teaching. And so uh, Balaam, he is especially linked uh, throughout, like you can find a lot, even in our own Bible, uh, to teaching uh, the, the people of God to kind of give in to sexual immorality. So that's part of why he uses the term Balaam. And then Jezebel is used for a variety of ways, but she's also linked to the sexual immorality as well. And so not the actual names of the false teachers, but it's this Old Testament symbol and image being used. So let's talk about this word sexual immorality in the New Testament. Sexual immorality in the New Testament, it is the Greek word porneo. Obviously, it's where at some point we got our word porn from. And so sexual immorality, porneo, in the New Testament world, world, it was a catch-all word. It was a word for all kinds of sexual behavior. It wasn't used for just one sort of sexual behavior. It was really used, you can find lots of evidence of this, it was used for all kinds of sexual uh, behaviors of all sorts. Uh, to help you out, sometimes people don't know this, in, in first century Rome, where this was written to and in, they was wildin', as the youth say, okay? They was wildin', okay? And so maybe the youth don't say that, but I've heard people my age say it. So they, they, they was wildin', okay? And so there was all, you, you might not know this, there was all kinds of sexual behaviors happening in the first century. Uh, some of it was tied to their religious worship. Some of it was tied to power dynamics. Some of it was just the stuff people like, wanted to do. Like, so there was all kinds of sexual behaviors happening in the church. And so porneo, or not just in the church, but in the culture that the church lived in. And so porneo was a catch-all word that referred to living outside the Christian and Jewish sex ethic. And it probably referred to a wide range of activities. Some of the activities, if you could do the research and the scholarship, you're going to go, man, these are really extreme. These are really crazy. And then some of the activities are not as extreme, not as crazy. And so like some, some of the activities were heterosexual sexual behaviors. Some were same-sex sexual behaviors. And some were even like multiple partner orgy-type behaviors. They was wildin' in the first century. Like, there was a lot of sexual behaviors happening in first century Rome. And so that, that kind of gives us a glimpse of, of what sexual immorality was and, and how they're referring to sexual, what behaviors are sexual immorality. But to really know that and to understand that well, we have to understand what the Christian sex ethic was. And that helps us to know, okay, which of, the, which of these behaviors were considered sexual immorality? And so here's what the Christian sex ethic was. And you can get this from a, a deep study of Scripture, I believe. The Christian sex ethic was, and I would say is, was sex and sexual behaviors were only to be within the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. And, and the idea behind this is God made it that two differentiated beings come together in oneness. And it's not this arbitrary thing. It's actually God showing who he is, using sex and marriage to show who he is. Right? So really, the story of God and his people, God and humanity, is a story of two differentiated beings coming together in oneness. And so sex and marriage, the reason it was so important to God and so important to God's people is because it represents God's love and commitment to his church, to his people. And it, it represents the oneness and the faithfulness that he has to his church. And it also represents the work that God has been doing since the start of creation. And that work is a work of joining heaven and earth together, heaven and creation together. 
Two differentiated places together in oneness. A lot of times when we think of heaven, we think of like this other dimension we go to, and I I think that's partially true, but really God's goal and really how heaven is used in the New Testament is heaven is wherever God is. And because creation is stained with sin right now, he is on a mission to bring heaven back to earth, to make earth a place where he could live with his creation. And so sex and marriage is a picture of that. And so sex and marriage for Christians, for the people of God throughout scripture is sacred. It's not, it's not something that's just like, oh, whatever. Like it is a, it's a sacred thing to them. And so we don't have time to go into a really deep theology of sex, but that is a, it's a good summary of the Christian sexual ethic. And it was even the Jewish sexual ethic. And so living outside of that sexual ethic, that Christian sexual ethic, probably in any way was seen as a problem for Christians. That in any way, it was called out as sinful. It was not God's ideal. And so it seems that these false teachers or these false religious groups like the Nicolaitans, it seems, especially Balaam and Jezebel, whoever they were, were teaching that Christians didn't really need to worry about the sex ethic in some way anymore. And the churches were going, that sounds good, that sounds awesome, let's go with it. And in these addresses, God, through John, God, through the Spirit, through John, says, no, 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 like, this matters. Okay, so now, I want to be totally honest, too. There's kind of a second use of this word sexual immorality in these addresses. It's actually used, it's the same word, but it's used metaphorically here too. Basically, it seems like in some of these letters, especially around this part where it's talking to Jezebel, it seems to be used metaphorically, essentially saying something like this to the people of God because they've worshiped other gods or participated in idolatry. Like, you have cheated on God. You have committed adultery by worshiping these other gods. It does seem like it's kind of used that way. If, when I've, I've read a lot of scholars on this stuff. Some of the scholars say all of the references in these addresses are metaphorical references for cheating on God. Some of the scholars say all of it is re, re, uh, addressing literal sexual immorality. Some scholars say both. I'm in the both camp. Even as I read how it's used in the different addresses, it seems like it's kind of going back and forth. And so here's what we need to know from zooming in on this issue. Cheating on God is an issue, and cheating on your spouse is an issue in these addresses. It's, it's seen as sin, okay? So that's the first issue that we zoomed in on, sexual immorality. Uh, let's now zoom in on the not as obvious issue. The not as obvious issue are the imperial cults. Sometimes they're known as the emperor cults when you're doing uh, work on this. The imperial cults. The emperor cult. So this one is not obvious to us in English because there's nowhere in there here where John's like, I'm calling out the imperial cults because they didn't, I don't even think they call it the imperial cults back then. That's just something we and historians say to describe what part of the Roman religion looked like. And so the imperial cult was the legally sanctioned Roman worship of the Roman emperors, the Caesars. And it would even kind of almost worship Rome itself and the ideals of Rome itself in certain ways. And so what would happen in the imperial cults in that time is Roman emperors, when they died, often they would become deified. And they would all say, hey, we have to worship this previous Caesar in a variety of ways. Sometimes it even happened to the Caesars before they died. That's when you knew you were with a really crazy Caesar, when he's like, no, deified now, like... Uh, they would begin to worship them sometimes before they died. And so no matter what, though, the imperial cult and Roman law saw all of the Caesars, all of the emperors, who went by Caesar, whatever, all of them they saw as divine in some way. In fact, it is the Caesars who may have first referred to themselves as the son of God. It's just interesting. And so this is the imperial cult. It was this sort of worship that all of the culture was legally supposed to follow. The Jewish people actually had an out. They had an out because of how the Old Testament is like, no, we don't do that. And so they had like this special out to really just keep riots from happening. 
They had this special out. They didn't have to bow the knee. But everyone else in the Roman culture were supposed to bow the knee to this imperial cult in some way. In, in fact, eventually the imperial cult, it got married to the worship of all the Roman gods, all the ones you learn about in sixth grade. The imperial cult, it got married to it in the sense of saying like, we are just like those gods. We are, it's the same kind of a thing. And so the imperial cult is actually all over these addresses. I, w- I think it's all over the book of Revelation. A lot of scholars say the imperial cult is one of the major backdrops to the book of Revelation. But the, it's not as obvious to us where it is. And so I want to point out some of the places where we see evidences of this imperial cult, this worship of the Caesars and the emperors and Rome itself. Three of the addresses are to Smyrna, Pergamum, and Thyatira. Those were all cities really well known for their imperial cults. Pergamum was actually the capital of the imperial cult worship. Pergamum's real fun. They had uh, imperial cult worship there. They had a a giant throne to Zeus there. And then I think they had a major governor of some sort there. So when we see, hey, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is, I think God's saying all of that is Satan's throne. (laughs) Like all of that is Satan's throne. The imperial cult, the Zeus worship, the worship of this local governor or the following of this local governor, I think could be uh, part of that. And so that's a bit of a hint. And so writing to those specific churches in Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, everyone reading the addresses to those churches would have had the imperial cult in mind. They would have said, oh, John's going hard at the imperial cult here. Like, you could see why John was exiled to Patmos. Like, this guy, he was not afraid to say things that were seen as treasonous in that culture in the time. And so that, that's one place that's not as obvious that's there that we see the imperial cult. Another place we see the imagery of the, or, or a uh, link to the imperial cult is the imagery we saw last week. We talked about Jesus holding these seven stars, right? Well, you can find coins from that day where different Caesars, or one Caesar in particular, is lifted up as divine. It says like divis Caesar or whatever that word is in their language as divine, and then on those coins had seven stars. And so for John to use the seven stars here that we saw last week, he's not just like, hey, it would be nice to have seven stars. He's like, oh, those coins have seven stars? So does my Lord. <laughs> like, that, he, he is referencing the imperial cult imagery, okay? Another possible reference, I think it's a reference to the imperial cult, is the reference to Balaam himself. If you go back to Numbers 22 and you read about Balaam, it's kind of a confusing story. And not kind of, it's a really confusing story. That's the one where the donkey talks, okay? It's a kind of confusing story. But what you can gather from that story, it does seem at certain points in the story, Balaam, who was a prophet of God, was willing to abandon faithfulness to God in order to gain riches from a, from a king. A king was like, let me pay you to say what I want. And he, it seemed like at different moments in the story, he's like, okay, that sounds good to me. And he, there's moments of faithfulness for him too in the story, and that's why it's confusing. But what happens with the name of Balaam is Jews and Christians alike then at, after Numbers began to use and refer Balaam as something not to do. You could go to the book of Jude, that's in the New Testament, you go to verse 11, and it seems that Balaam is now used as this trope or as this symbol that of, of, of a Christian who had abandoned their faithfulness to God in order to gain. And in the story, in Numbers, he's gaining from a king. So I would kind of say, I think this reference to Balaam here is a reference to how the imperial cult worship got to Christianity where they gave into it in different moments, maybe even to gain from Rome in certain ways. And that's part of why Balaam is being used. And so because of that too, the idolatry, there's this uh, two references to idolatry in the letters, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, where it talks about food being sacrificed to idols, a confusing thing that needs a lot of nuance in the New Testament. But whatever is going on here is clearly idolatry. Those are both in Pergamum and Thyatira. So the idolatry, the food being sacrificed to idols, it would for sure be linked to the imperial cults. 
So when the idolatry is being called out, it is practices that are for sure linked to the imperial cults. And so there are lots of evidences of the imperial cult here in Revelation. It's just not as obvious to us. So in that day, it was a temptation for Christians to alter their faith and their faithful practices in a way that would be acceptable to the culture that they lived in and the Caesars that they lived under. And in part, what John is saying is, that means they were worshiping their government. That means they were worshiping their emperors. They were committing adultery. All the while, they were trying to maintain that they were Christians. God, in Revelation, sees the imperial cult worship as idolatry, and he wants the church, he wants Christians to have nothing to do with that. Nothing to do with that. A lot of the things that are said in these addresses are said because of the imperial cult. Okay, so those are the two issues we zoomed in on for the first century church, sexual immorality and the imperial cult. Now what I want to do is talk about how do we listen and hear these issues and hear if they're issues for us. I'm going to take another drink. I'm not nervous. I am nervous. Uh, So... I think both of these issues, sexual immorality and the imperial cult, are issues that American Christians deal with all the time. Differently, but although kind of eerily similar at times. And so I want to zoom in on them and, and let our ears listen to what God is saying to us through these words to these churches as well. Okay, so first, let's talk about sexual immorality. I think this is a, a major issue for Christians in America, but Christians in Flagstaff, Arizona. I think how we use our sexuality and how we steward our sexuality, it has to be one of the most controversial and talked about issues for Christians in Flagstaff. For many of us, why it's controversial and why we want to talk about it is because it, it, it's hard for us to understand like things that feel good and don't hurt anybody else. Like How could that be sin? How could that be harmful? But when you look at God's word, when you look at Revelation, when you do a study of sexual immorality throughout the Bible, God's word certainly thinks how we steward our sexuality and how we steward our our sexual behavior certainly is sin in in certain ways. And I'll be honest, I, I think there's a lot of American evangelicals who are very legalistic when it comes to what is sexual sin and, and how to deal with that and these kinds of things. But I feel like the pendulum swing away from those legalistic American Christians has been to say, well, God doesn't actually really care at all. He doesn't really care about that stuff. Don't worry about that. That's just legalism. They're just tricking you. I, I, I say this as your pastor who's done deep study on this topic over the last decade or more. God does care. If we really believe this to be God's word, which I do, he does care. He cares about how we steward a lot of our lives, not just the sexual aspect of our lives. He cares about how we steward our money. He cares about how we steward our time. He cares about how we love our neighbor. He cares about all sorts of things, and he also cares about how we steward our sexuality. And his reason for that is, I think, twofold. One, God has a design for creation that's good for us, even though it seems at times like his, de- his design is denying us in some way. And then also, sex itself and marriage itself points to God and his faithfulness and his work of bringing differentiated places of heaven and earth back together. And so sex becomes sacred because it's a thing that points to who God is and his work in the world. And so God, I think, he's always going to call us back to what his ideal is. And I think that's what's happening in Revelation. He's calling us back to what his ideal for sex and marriage is. And so I think we should not fall into the easy cultural ideals that this doesn't really matter to God. It doesn't really hurt anybody. I shouldn't even worry about it. I think it does. I think if we're going to be honest with Scripture and what God's trying to communicate to us through it, is I think it does. And, and I want to say that, too, with, the, with this caveat. The church, the American church, the churches I grew up in, they often deeply stigmatize sexual sin and none of the other stuff. 
Like, talk, like, take how God talks about money in the Bible. You're going to be scared as an American, okay? Like, if you're going to actually be honest with what God says about money in the Bible, you should be a little bit scared as an American. I ain't heard a lot of sermons about that. And so, so we, we deeply stigmatize sexual sin far more than the Bible does in the American church at times. And here's what we have to know. We all have s- sexual sin and brokenness. We all have sexual sin and brokenness. We are all sexual beings. We all have sexual sin and brokenness. I, your pastor, has sexual sin and brokenness. Like I do. We all do. Because we're human and we're sexual beings. And so God, he doesn't want to stigmatize us for having that sexual sin and brokenness. But he does want us to wake up to it. He does want us to wake up to it and find in his grace the fuel to sin no more. I think that's how we can listen to the message in Revelation about sexual immorality. Let's, let's talk about the other, the other one. This one's more fun for me. This one's more fun. Uh, the imperial cult. How is the imperial cult similar to us today and what we're struggling with today? Raise of hands. How many people worship Caesar? Anybody? <laughs> like, nobody? Okay. Well, we're good. Actually, we're... Uh, uh, no, obviously none of us are part of the imperial cult. None of us worship Caesar. But in America, I think we see the American version of the imperial cult in how many of us worship the political ideologies of the right and the left. I think we see the imperial cult worship of America in how many of us worship the ideologies of the right, that's my left, and the left. I did that wrong, but it's for you guys. And I think you see our worship of the American imperial court in our behaviors. Both parties do this thing that's just horrible. Both parties reduce people to binaries. Here's what they do. They go, if you're with us, you're good. You're with the good guys. If you're not with us, you're evil. Both parties do that. And when we participate in that way of thinking, that way of treating people, you are worshiping the American imperial cult centered around the ideologies of the right and the left. You cannot reduce people to those sorts of binaries. Humans with the image of God cannot be reduced to that. Humans are all sinful and we all have the image of God on us. Both things are true of every human, not just of your side. Having one of those things. And so I think you see our worship of the ideologies of the right and the left when you stigmatize someone or cut someone off that lives outside of the binaries you're most comfortable with. I, I, even this week, I started to go, I think I've done this at times. And I hate that I've done that. That's worship of the imperial cult. That's idolatry. Okay, I want to really zoom in on this. I want to zoom in on this. Like, I've kept it pretty broad. Everybody's like, yeah, we're all mean. But I want to zoom in a little bit more. I think one of our parties does exactly, I think one of the parties does exactly what some of those Christians were doing, where they are mixing the faith of the imperial cult with the faith of Christianity. And they're mixing it up. And that is God's problem with those churches. It's going, you can't mix these faiths. This is not, these things aren't to be mixed when you're eating these food sacrificed to idols. You can't mix these, this faith. And I think one of the parties in particular does that. Listen to these lines from a real speech from a real vice president. This is what he says. He says, now it's our turn. Let us, let's run the race marked out for us. Let's fix our eyes on old glory and all she represents. Let's fix our eyes on this land of heroes and, their, and let their courage inspire. And let's fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith and our freedom. And never forget, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That means freedom always wins. Do you see how insidious and blasphemous that was? I don't know if you know what he's doing there, but he's taking the first few verses of Hebrews chapter 12, God's word, and he is altering it in a way to serve his party. 
right? The, run, the race run before him is to get his guy elected. Not persevere. You know, this was written to the Hebrews who are facing persecution for their faith. And if they heard, oh, there's a guy 2,000 years later who's saying, like, let's get this guy elected. Like, that's how he uses it. Like, they would be like, no. This is like we are persevering in the face of violence, holding on to Jesus best we can. And then here's what he does that's, I think, blasphemous. He says, let us fix our eyes not on Jesus, as Hebrews 12 says. He says, let us fix our eyes on old glory. The flag, the American flag. And he says, and everything America represents. So he's basically saying, let us fix our eyes on America and our land, not Jesus. So he takes this verse, and then he does this, and then at the end he's like, oh, and yes, also on the perfecter of our faith and our Lord. Right? Like he, he finishes off the verse the way Hebrews does, but that's so insidious. That's so insidious. The verse is not, here's a bunch of things we can fix our eyes on. The verse is, fix your eyes on Jesus. And he's saying, he's equating what we need to fix our eyes on to America itself and our land and his ideals. That's imperial cult worship. Imperial cult worship, if I've ever seen it, in America. That's imperial cult worship. To mix our faith with the American ideologies and worship them like we worship Jesus is imperial cult worship. It is. And my problem with it, why I'm a little bit angsty about it, is a lot of American evangelicals, they eat it up. They hear a speech like that and they go, see, Christian. I just don't know how it could be Christian if he's disobeying the first two commandments. Like, I don't know how. That's imperial cult worship, and many of us eat it up. And I'll be fair, because you probably all know which side was doing that. Both sides do it. One side just does it, like, really intensely. And so to be fair, I want to call it the other side something they do too, that looks like imperial cult worship. Part of the imperial cult worship of that day was this intense pressure on everyone to bow the knee this intense pressure to say, you have to do this, you have to worship these Caesars in these ways or else. And so the first century church felt this pressure all the time to, to bow the knee to the imperial court. And so I think the other side of the imperial court, cult worship in our country often says, without using these words exactly, they say true righteousness is only found in complete and total agreement with our platform. And we are the ones with the good kings who will bring the peace of Rome, I mean the peace of America and the peace of har and harmony of America. And if you oppose us in any way, you're evil or wrong or bigoted. And again, the other, both sides do this. One side, it feels like they do it a little bit more. To me, that's just my perspective. That's American imperial cult worship. It might not be as obvious to us as the first century imperial cult worship, but it is rampant in our society, and it's rampant among Christians. So, those are the two issues, sexual immorality, Imperial cult worship that we zoomed in, what do we do about it? We repent. We repent. One of the other major themes of these letters is God telling his churches to repent, to turn back. Repentance is not just something we do when we first become Christians. It's not just something we do when we first become Christians. Because this is being addressed to Christians and they're being told to repent, we can see that repentance is part of the, the daily life of the Christian, the normal life of a, of a Christian, the routine life of the Christian. Repentance, if you want to get an image of what it is, repentance is when we are like turned in on ourselves, walking towards serving ourselves, walking towards serve, like whatever sins, whatever things we want to walk towards, and repenting is actually turning around and turning to God and turning towards him. And all through these letters, God is saying, hey, here's your issues, just turn back to me. This is one of the most hopeful things to me in these letters. Like God lays into Laodicea, but he also begs them more than anybody else to repent. Like he does, he's like, I'm at the door, you guys. 
Like that is so hopeful that a church as far gone as Laodicea, God is going, repent, turn back. And so when we think about repentance and what this means, we have to think of God. God is this divine father. He's standing on his porch, but he's not yelling at us to get off his lawn when we commit sexual immorality or idolatry. He's saying, come back. Come back. I've got something better for you. I've got something much better for you. That's who God is, and that's what repentance looks like. It's seeing where we worship this, these things. It's seeing where, where our behaviors point out our worship of these other things and turning to God instead. And what that means is repentance is not just a prayer. Repentance for us is like a lifestyle. Repentance is seen in our actions. Now, to be clear, Jesus saves us completely. There's nothing we do to get saved. But because he saved us, because he's shown us this love, it's so easy to turn back to God anytime. And so repentance for us becomes actually living these things out, letting our lives show that we've turned to God. That's what God is saying in these addresses. And so repentance for us, if we're going to let revelation do to us what it's supposed to do, is we are going to discern. We are going to discern where these various things tempt us and where we outright participate in them, and we're going to turn away from them. We're going to happily turn away from them. We're going to boldly turn away from them. Repentance means for us, at times, we are going to have to live dissident lives of holiness, lives that our culture is going to look at us and say, that's bigoted, that's wrong, that hurts you where we're going to have to trust God. We're going to have to live lives at times, dissonant lives that oppose what the culture around us will say. That's what repentance will look like. Repentance will mean trusting the lamb, trusting Jesus more than we trust his creation to be all that we need. And so church, there, this, this, these addresses, they, there's a lot of corrections in it. And even though they lived in a very different context to us, God, the things that God spoke to them are things he's speaking to us. They're for believers in all places and all times. And here's what's hopeful about all these corrections God is making is it means there's always a way back to God. There's always a way back to God. So may we wake up and repent. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. These words do challenge us, God. They challenge me. I can't, uh, I can't read all of these challenges and just like simply think like, oh, I'm great. Like, I'm challenged by this, God, and I know it's just you calling me and calling us back to you. So let us hear that, God. I think for, the, for me and others like me who are prone to guilt, God, we can just say, okay, here's another rung on the ladder to climb towards you, when you, would, you just would clearly say to us, you've, got, you've gotten to us already. The ladder was your son, Jesus. Like, you're already here with us. And so, uh, God, just help us to hear this the way we're supposed to hear it. Not putting guilt on top of ourselves, but uh, having ears to hear and having the boldness and strength to turn to you, to repent when we need to. God, we love you and we need you to do this well. Amen.